Amen, church. Let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer before we open up God's word together this morning. Father, thank you so much for the truth that we just sung, that you are Emmanuel, that you are God with us. You are not a God who can't sympathize with us in our weaknesses because you were, you were God incarnate. You came to be man just like us. You came to experience the suffering, the pain, the sorrow, the grief, just like us. You are God with us. And Lord, I know that um, in our body today, in this church today, there are people who are hurting and suffering, people who are in need of your sympathy, your empathy, your healing, your counsel. So Lord, I pray that you would speak and nurture and minister to each heart that may be in that place. Um, Lord, thank you for the, for the privilege that we have to praise you. Thank you that you are not um, seated uh, in, in buildings made by hands, but you're seated upon the praises of your people, as your word says. So thank you for the privilege that we have to worship and to praise you. I ask, Lord, now that as we turn to your word, as we continue to look through your, your, your book of Ezra and Nehemiah, that you would speak to us. God, just as we started off last week with our hands open to you, our hearts open to you, invite you to move in us, that you would rebuild us, you would build us into the people of God through your word. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you guys can go and have a seat. Hey, if you, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Ezra chapter 3. Um, hey, and I want to remind you, if you don't have a Bible and you would like a Bible, we have one for you. There are some Bibles um, just outside these doors right there on the table um, as you leave. Grab one, take one home with you. That's, that's our gift to you. Um, we want the Word of God in your hands. We want it in your heart. Uh, we want it transforming and changing your lives. So Ezra chapter 3. All right, so from the years of 2008 to 2011, God had stirred, or if you were here last week, we talked about, had awakened Annie and I to the purposes of God in the form of foreign missions. Uh, we had been learning about this concept called unreached peoples. If you're unfamiliar with that, it's this, this reality, this statistical reality that there are 3.4 billion individuals on this globe today that have very little to no access to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Did y'all hear that? 3.4 billion people. When, when Annie and I were hearing those statistics, like we were stirred. Like, that couldn't sit still. Like, in our eyes, this is an evil injustice. We have got to do something about this. But what we struggled with was it just seemed that everybody around us was, was somewhat apathetic to those statistics. Like, they, they weren't stirred like we are, and we, and we were frustrated by that. And, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. Looking Looking back, you know, what we know now that we didn't know then is that that was God's stirring of us. That, that, was, that was God awakening us to his purposes of foreign missions, and, and it wasn't necessarily awakening others to that. You know, so it's so easy for us to get frustrated when people aren't stirred to certain endeavors, to certain ministries, to certain things, and it's because that's God's stirring of, of you, right? We all see the world through the lenses of God's stirring within us, but we were stirred. So in 2013, we, we um, took the step. Uh, leading up to that, we had taken every step of obedience that we knew to take. I, I took a job to, to pay the bills, barely, um, really in an effort to avoid an, a, a career that would try to keep us, like would tempt us, right, from going to the mission field. 
We started raising our own financial support, which you know has its its ups and downs. Um, we, we began to sell all of our possessions to live as simply as possible in preparation. And then in 2013, we, we crossed the pond, moved to North Africa. And I'll spare you all the details, but the first 18 months of our missionary career were some of the hardest, darkest times of our life. Um, it, it, was, it was incredibly painful and really difficult. And, and in that season, y'all, I struggled personally. I struggled in my faith. I struggled with frustration towards the Lord. I struggled with, with anger towards the Lord. Yeah, I'm just trying to be honest. This is a safe place, right? I was angry. And my anger towards God was really boiled down to this one singular sentiment. It was this. God, all we have done is said yes to you. Like, all I have done is tried to be obedient to what you have called us to do. Why then must it be so hard? Like, why are we facing so much opposition? And and church, as we turn to Ezra chapter 3 today, here's what I want to say. Obedience will always attract opposition. Obedience to the purposes of God will always attract opposition. Always. As we saw last week, God had stirred the people of Israel to his purposes. He, He had awakened them to return to Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple of God. And 42,000, is what we saw in Ezra chapter 2, were obedient. Obedient to the stirring, to the awakening, to the purposes of God. And they moved back to Jerusalem. But what we're going to see in Ezra chapters 3 through 6, four chapters today, is that, that opposition awaits them. Church, obedience always attracts opposition. You want to start being more intentional in your devotional life? You can expect opposition. You, you want to start being more intentional in the discipleship of your family, in the discipleship of your home? You can expect opposition to that. You want to, you want to start serving God for His glory and His honor, whether that's with the poor, the orphans, or the widows. You can expect opposition. You sense God maybe stirring you into some kind of vocational call into ministry. You can expect opposition. You think maybe God's awakening in you, a desire to live more generously. Guess what? Like You can expect opposition because there's a principle at play here. Obedience always attracts opposition. Yay. Right? Aren't you excited to join the purposes of God? It's just a principle of the kingdom. It, it always exists because we're in a spiritual battle here. But, but here's the good news for us and what we're going to see in Ezra chapter 3. You're not a sitting duck. Like you don't just have to sit there and take this opposition. Like you actually get to fight back. We actually get to wage, as Paul says to Timothy, the good warfare. That there are weapons at our disposal that God wants us to utilize in order to join him in his purposes, even in the face of opposition. And that's what I want us to see today. How do we wage the warfare when that inevitable opposition comes against you when you're trying to be obedient to the kingdom of God? So that's the question for us, okay? So we got four chapters. Ezra chapters three through six. And, and let me just say this. The reason we chose four chapters is twofold. We're, I'm crazy thinking that we can get this done in 40 minutes, but we're going to try, okay? Um, The second, though, is that as we move through Ezra and Nehemiah, these same themes are going to kind of emerge, and that's going to allot us an opportunity to slow down and go a little bit deeper into these themes. So today, we're going to take a huge swath of Scripture with a singular focus of how do we wage the good warfare. We want to be a people built by God. We want, to wake, we want to wake up to his purposes. We want to be a part of what he's doing. Opposition is inevitable. How do we continue to move forward in the face of that opposition? Okay, that's the question we want to see today. So Ezra chapter 3, verse 1. When the seventh month came, 
And the children of Israel were in the towns. The people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Josadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening, and they kept the feast of booths as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule, as each day required. And after the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon, and all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a free will offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. All right, let's pause right there and let me give you point number one, okay? How do we wage the good warfare? You do it with worship. We wage the good warfare with worship. What this text is saying is that six months after the exiles return from Babylon to Jerusalem, they gather as one man to construct the altar. And we said this, that Ezra and Nehemiah it chronicles three waves of return that spans about 100 years. The first wave is led by who? Remember his name? Zerubbabel, what a great name, right? Led by Zerubbabel, the prince of Judah. But there's another character that emerges here who's going to play a massive role in this first wave, and that's Jeshua. Jeshua is the priest. And this project, y'all, this project of rebuilding the altar, of rebuilding the temple, is going to require so much from Jeshua because as a priest, his responsibility was to know what the law of Moses dictates for the form of worship. How do we construct the altar? What offerings are to go onto the altar? So Jeshua is going to play a huge role here. But here's what I want you to notice. Go back to verse 3 with me. It says, They set the altar in its place. Why? For fear was on them because of the peoples of the land. They were afraid. You see, as soon as they return to Jerusalem, they are immediately aware that they are living in a hostile environment, okay? They're afraid. They're surrounded by, by these enemies, by these adversaries. And I'm going to tell you who they are here in just a second. But what's beautiful about this is that in their fear, they gathered as one man to build this altar. Church, what a, what a beautiful picture of the unity that can be found when a, when a common people, right, come together for a common purpose, especially in the face of a common enemy. They assembled as one man. I can't go too long here, but this is one of the reasons we cannot forsake this gathering. Hebrews 10 commands that, that we cannot forsake the gathering of the brethren. This is a time that is sacred. We have to protect this time. We have to gather together because there is power, y'all. There is power found when the body of Christ comes together with a common purpose in the face of a common enemy and takes their eyes off the things of this world and puts our eyes on the things of Jesus, y'all. That's powerful. And that's what happened here in Jerusalem. As soon as they arrive, they are aware they're in a hostile environment and they gather together as one man to build the altar. So what's so insignificant about the altar? In the Old Testament, the altar was central to the worship of the people of God. In the Old Testament, altars were where you would bring an animal, a bull, a goat, a lamb maybe, and you would sacrifice that animal on the altar to atone for or to cover for your sins and in that atonement, when you offer that animal on the altar, that restores your connection and your communion with God, right? Because what does sin do? Sin separates us from God. Sin breaks our communion and our connection with God. So to restore that, God made a way called an altar where you could make a blood sacrifice. And in the effort of putting that sacrifice on the altar, your connection, your communion would be restored with God. Church, this is the essence of worship. 
it's hard to define worship, but, but let me give you an opportunity. I, I think that worship is just connecting and communion with God. Let me say it again. It's just simple. Connecting and communing with God. It's not limited to song. We're going to talk about song and singing here in just a second, but, but worship is connecting and communing with God. And, and what happens is sin hinders that connection. It hinders that communing. But God in his love and his grace provided a way for the Old Testament people, for the people of Israel, to restore that connection in that communion. At its core, worship requires sacrifice. Right? It requires sacrifice. Now listen, as believers in Christ, under the new covenant of grace, we are no longer required to bring the blood of bulls or of goats or of lambs to offer on an altar for our worship. Right? We're good with that? Have y'all seen that practiced in your churches? Please let me know if that's the case, okay? We're not required to do that. That's Hebrews chapter 10, verse 8, because it says it's impossible for the blood of bulls and of goats to atone for, to, for, to lead to forgiveness for your sins. It's impossible. That's Hebrews chapter 10. But by grace, in our place, what, what God provided was a perfect, spotless lamb of God. And that Jesus, sacrificing himself on an altar, which is called the cross, you and I actually, by grace, have the opportunity to, to have our relationship restored with God, our communion restored, our connection restored. The sacrifice of Jesus makes our relationship with God possible. So then, why does worship for us still require sacrifice, does it? Does our worship of God still require sacrifice? Yeah. Even under the new covenant, it requires sacrifice. Now listen, I'm not getting weird. I'm going to explain exactly what this means. When we see the sacrifice of Jesus, and we see the grace that, that occurs with the sacrifice of Christ, what it does is it solicits in us a response to sacrifice for him. Do you see that? Do you hear that? Like his sacrifice goes first. And when we get a picture of his sacrifice and the depth of his sacrifice, it solicits in us a response to want to give everything back to him. Worship requires sacrifice. Let me read Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. As believers under the new covenant, your spiritual worship is to offer a sacrifice to Christ. And what did Paul say the sacrifice was? Your life. You're to offer your lives. Our spiritual worship isn't just coming here and lifting up some praises. Your spiritual worship under the covenant of, of grace is to offer your lives to God. To give Him all of who you are. To live for His honor, for His glory, for His purposes, not for your own. And we can wage war when we realize that type of sacrifice through worship. Have you? I think that's just a question. Have you actually offered your life as a sacrifice to God? Is that your spiritual worship? Or have you limited your spiritual worship to maybe just showing up on a Sunday morning? Because that's not enough. Our spiritual worship to God is to sacrifice our lives for Him. So the people, let me go back to Ezra 3. The people are aware that they're in a hostile environment and they immediately begin to worship through sacrifice. But look at verse 6. At the end of verse 6, it says, But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. 
And in verse 7 it says, So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrrhenians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. So as soon as they get there, they're surrounded by a hostile environment. They build the altar and they begin to make their sacrifices. But the temple hasn't been built yet. This is just the altar, something that goes within the temple. The temple hasn't been built. So they order all of their materials in verse 7 to build the temple. And then let's flip to, to verse 10. Once those materials come in, we read this. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets. And the Levites, the son of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord, according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Church, worship is warfare. And it consists of sacrifice, but it also consists of praise. When the foundation of the temple was laid, it says in verse 11 that they sang responsively. When they saw the goodness of their God, the faithfulness of the God, their steadfast love of their God, the only response they had was to begin to open up their lips and begin to praise him for who he is. And what's remarkable to me about this in Ezra chapter 3 is that it's just a foundation, right? The temple hasn't been built. Like, the, the, the walls haven't gone vertical. It's just the foundation that has been laid. And yet, you see such extravagant praise coming out of the people of Israel just because of a foundation. And it's remarkable because I, I think there's a principle here. True faith tends to praise even when you don't see the results that you're hoping for. Come on, wake up a little bit. True faith will praise God even when you don't see the results that you're hoping for. That's true faith. These people had journeyed 500 miles, had counted a significant cost just to be obedient to the purposes of God, just to see his temple rebuilt. We're not even close to that temple being rebuilt. This is going to take months. Actually, it's going to take years before this project is completed. But what do we find the people of God doing? Praising him. Praising him for his faithfulness, praising him for his goodness, praising him for who he is. Church, we see this all throughout Scripture. In Romans chapter 4, verse 20, it says that Abraham grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do all that he had promised. Abraham was promised, right, by God a descendant, a, a massive amount of descendants. But for 25 years, he couldn't have a child. Sarah, his wife, was barren for 25 years. Abraham had held on to a promise. So what did he do in that 25 years? When he wasn't seeing the fulfillment, when he wasn't seeing the results that he was hoping for, what did he do? Did he mope around, walk around with his head down? No, Romans says that he gave glory to God. He praised him. He put his eyes on the, on the character and the deeds of God. Church, I can't tell you how many seasons of Annie and I's life we have had circumstances or situations that have been overwhelming despairing, like dark places that try to lead us into this, this deep, like impossible set of depression. And I wish I could say we've been perfect, that every time a season like that has come, we've responded with faith, that we've responded with praise. We haven't. But I can tell you that the times that we have, where we have in that moment, even in the pain, been able to look up to Jesus, put our, lock our eyes on him, 
and begin to declare who he is, that he is good, that his steadfast love never ceases, that he is faithful, even when we can't see the results. Every time we've been able to declare who he is in the midst of that pain, over time, that darkness begins to lift. Light begins to pop through. Fog begins to clear. And all of a sudden, we feel strong. You know why? Because worship is war. It is warfare. When you can declare the, the, the goodness of your God in the midst of difficulty, it is warfare. Y'all, Satan hates it. When you're in a tough season and you just fill your home with the praise of who God is, he hates that. When he brings Job before God, before God and wants to ruin all of Job's life, take everything that Job has to offer, and Job responds by saying, hey, he gives and takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That drives him nuts because he wants to discourage you and he wants to lead you to despair, to doubt. But when we respond by praising him, even when we don't see the results that we're hoping for, church, that's warfare. It pushes back things, I can promise you. Verbally declare the character and the deeds and the goodness of your God. That's what these people did. Even when they didn't see the fruition, they, they sang responsibly right out of Psalm 100 and verse 5. He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. He is good. Church, I just want to encourage you, if you're in a hard spot, praise. Start praising God. Start being reminded of who He is and remind the people around you of who He is and praise. God will respond. That darkness will get pushed backwards. But I want you to look at verse 11 real quick as I close this point. It says that they began to sing with great shouts. Y'all, did you know it's okay to worship and praise God with emotion? You know, it's okay. Like, I, this, isn't, this isn't me speaking to the American church. This is speaking to, like, CBC Richmond Hill. Y'all, it's okay for you to get loud and excited about the goodness of our God. I think this is one of the, the, the things that, that we struggle with as a local congregation, like as a church, because like we're a Bible church. We want to preach expositionally through the books of the Bible, and that's not changing, that's not going anywhere. We're going to continue to preach this book. But I think sometimes we can begin to exalt loving God with our minds at the neglect of loving Him with our souls or our hearts, which includes your emotions. Does that make sense? But the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, with everything that you have. Y'all, it's okay to get excited about worship. It's okay to get loud. So when was the last time you praised God with some level of emotion? When was the last time you went through a season of difficulty and you responded through the faith of praise? Church, worship is warfare. Worship is a, is a weapon that God gives us to wake us up, to push back this darkness and be a people built by God. But quickly look at verse 12. So they're singing these praises. They're worshiping God without even seeing the results of it. But, but verse 12 says, Many of the priests and the Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy. Man, I wish I had 40 minutes to just teach on this. So, some of the elders of the people of Israel remembered Solomon's temple. You had to go back 70 years before it was decimated by the king of Babylon. But it was a glorious temple. And some of the elders in the room, this, remember, this is 70 years after that temple had been burned and, and destroyed. Some of them remembered the glory of the former temple. And then they see this, this seemingly insignificant foundation of this new one. It was so much smaller than the one that they remembered. And y'all, they're just grieving. They're, they're weeping because of the foundation and how so much smaller and simpler it was than the former one. 
Can I just speak to some of our elders in the room? In, in church, just, I just want you to hear this. I, it's so easy. You walk through our doors, it's so easy to think that our church is, is full of young families. It's not untrue. Okay. The strength of our church is found in the elders in this room. And I said this a couple of weeks ago as we set up Ezra and Nehemiah, that, that I really believe that the church in the West is under a period of judgment for rejecting God and conforming to the patterns of this world. For the elders in the room, please, please don't just slip into a place where you just grieve that. I don't want you to slip into a place where you go, this is just not the way it used to be. It, it used to be so much better. This used to be a Christian nation. This used to be whatever, fill in the blank. I don't, it's okay to grieve. Don't stay there. Because what God is doing in Ezra is rebuilding his people. You're a part of that. So I just want to highlight the elders. Last week it was the men. Today is the elders. Okay, I just want to highlight, we need you. We need you to invest. We need you to help rebuild the people of God. Don't just grieve it. It would be so much easier to do that. Don't just be there. Okay. So, that's my tangent. Worship is restored. Foundation of the temple is laid. But as we turn to chapter 4, the hostility that the people of Israel feared in chapter 3 gets realized. So, so turn with me to Ezra chapter 4, verse 1. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. We have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of your shot and the king of Assyria who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the father's houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God. But we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. All right, so here's what's going on. The neighbors that the people of Israel so feared come up to Zerubbabel and say, Hey, we, we'd love to help you. Looks like you guys got a, a, a big task on your hand. How, how can we be of service to you guys? We would love to join you because we worship God just as you do, to which Zerubbabel says, We ain't got nothing to do with you. At first glance, this is one of those moments where we're like, Jeez, like Zerub, like Edith Snickers. You, you know, why so, why so hostile towards these people? Like, like, why are you being so bigoted? Like, so discriminatory, so exclusive. Like, why not be so more loving and, and accepting and tolerant? Right? I mean, don't you read that? Like, Zerub had such a firm response to these people. But, but church, um, there's an answer to that. There's a good reason for that. You see, Zerubbabel understood their intent. They had some political motivations, but more importantly, y'all, they had some spiritual motivations. They said, we've been worshiping the same God that you do ever since Ereshaddon. To answer, to answer who these people were, like, like who actually were these people in this hostile environment, we, we've got to go back to 2 Kings chapter 17. So I mentioned to you that before the kingdom of Babylon, there was another kingdom called the kingdom of Assyria. And Assyria conquered the northern kingdom of Israel and, and deported all of the people of Israel. Kingdom of Assyria. And in 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 24, this is what we read about that time period. It says, And the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutta, Ava, Hamath, and Seravim, and placed them in the cities of Israel instead of the people of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. So the king of Assyria brings this hodgepodge group of people from all of these other nations into the land of Israel. And then we read this in verse 29 of 2 Kings 17. But every nation still made gods of its own 
and put them in the shrines of the high places that the Samaritans had made, every nation in the cities in which they lived. So these nations feared the Lord, but also served their own gods, after the manner of the nations from among whom they had been carried away. So these people walk up and go, Zeru, we worship your God too? And Zerubbabel says, our, our God can't be compared to all these other gods. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? That these people were polytheistic. That they worshipped Yahweh, but they also worshipped all these other gods from the nations of which they came. And Zerubbabel knew that. And Zerubbabel says, you, you can't have anything to do with us. Church, we are in a culture right now where this subtle desire for uniformity is present. Like the world is coming to you as a Christian. It's coming to the church and going, y'all, we're, we're the same. Like we... We agree with the same things like we believe in loving all people. We believe in serving the poor. We, we, we believe in, in, in Jesus. Jesus? We love Jesus. Don't get me started on Jesus. Like we, we love Jesus. We, we're the same as you guys. And there are times, and I'm going to keep talking about this in a second. There are times where we're going to have to look at the world and go, you have nothing to do with us. We are distinct from you. This is different. This is not the same. Now, now let me go a little bit deeper there, okay? Just this week, I, I kid you not, I, I could not have drawn this up. Just this week, while I was preparing for this sermon, I had an experience like this. So, um, Richmond Hill is a fairly small town, right? And sometimes, I, I need to study and get ready for Sundays, but, but Coleman and I distract each other. And so I need to slip away. So I chose on Monday, I'm going to slip away. I'm going to get outside of Richmond Hill. I'm going to do my study. I'm going to have my headphones in. I'm going to get it done. And then I'm at this coffee shop. won't tell you where. And this lady just comes and sits down with me. Kid you not. Moves my bag. Sits down. <laughs> now listen, she was unbelievably polite. Kind, gentle, sweet spirit. She asked me a question to which, you know, I pull my headphone out. Because I'm like, what is happening right now? And, and she says, oh, you have, your, you have a Bible. You know, and you think, oh, a pastor is going to love this type of conversation. Actually, my heart was screaming, come on. So I pull my headphone out, and she says, hey, you have a Bible. Are you, are you a believer in God? And I said, yeah, of, of course. God, God has ultimately transformed me and changed me. And she says, oh, I love Jesus. And she begins to show me her, her cross bracelet and her cross necklace and, and all these other things. She begins to tell me about her love for Jesus. And, and I just said, yeah, God has, he, he has rocked my world. He has absolutely transformed me and changed me, to which she responds and says, she has changed me too. And, and then she goes on and says, I, I love Jesus, um, and, uh, but I also love yogic spirituality. So it, for me, I, I'm kind of a, a Krindu. That's what she called herself, a Krindu. I'm a Christian Hindu. And y'all, it's so easy, and I, I don't need to be mean to you or to me, but, but it's so easy for us to hear stuff like that and scoff. You know, just go, oh, you know, oh my goodness. Y'all, this is the world we live in. Like, like wake up. Like, this is the world. These types of, of polytheistic, pantheistic beliefs are rampant. It's everywhere. And she comes down and goes, we're the same. We, we believe in the same thing. I love Jesus. We're in the same place. And, and she went off about how she believes God is gender neutral and, and how um, we can approach him or her however we would like to, and, and to which I look at her with as much compassion. And again, she was so polite. So kind. And I look at her with as much compassion, but also as much firmness and say, you know, I, I think I hear what you're saying. But God is our creator. He, he created us. And as creator, I think he has the right to dictate how we approach him. 
And according to Scripture, he reveals himself in, in the masculine, and I think we need to take him at his word. Now listen, she received that with so much kindness and so much politeness, but the conversation was over. She realized, just like Zerubbabel, we, we don't believe the same thing. Church, the world around us is wanting us to conform to that, to, to believe in, in whatever it is. And again, she was so polite. This is not an indictment to her, but this is the culture that we live in. There are times where you and I are going to have to look at them with the firmness of Zerubbabel and say, I'm sorry, you have nothing to do with us. And guess what? Now, I'm not talking about being a jerk. If you want to hear what I have to say about that, I, I, have, a, I have a bone to pick with a bunch of Christians who are just a jerk. Okay? I'm not talking about being a jerk. But when you respond with firmness in your convictions, you are going to rile up some of the most vile opposition you have ever experienced. And that's exactly what happens in Ezra chapter 4. And I've got to speed up a little bit. Ezra chapter 4, verse 4. Zerubbabel says, you got nothing to do with us. And it says, and the people of the land began to discourage the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribe counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. Okay, okay, so here's what's going on. People of God were firm. They said, we have a purpose. We've been stirred up. We've been awakened to it. We know what God has called us to. We said, you can't have anything to do with us. And it stirs up the hostile environment to discourage. Verse 4, discourage the people of Judah. The Hebrew there means relax the hands. That's the hope of the opposition. The hope of your enemy is to relax your hands, to get you just distracted enough that you take your hands off the work that God has stirred you up to, to get you distracted. And the opposition here ends up writing a letter to the king of Persia making these inflammatory accusations about the people of Israel. Now the timeline here can be a bit confusing because Ezra, who's our author, is writing about all these other kings. You got Cyrus, you got Darius, you got Ahasuerus. Coleman's going to help us next week understand this, this timeline a bit better. Okay, What I want to say here is that the intent of Ezra is in the listing of these kings is to show us that the opposition for the people of God lasted the entirety of their project. From the time of Cyrus all the way to the time to Artaxerxes and, and Ahasuerus, man, they, they, this opposition lasted the entirety of the 100 years it took them to rebuild the purposes of God. And in this letter, in Ezra chapter 4, they send these inflammatory accusations about the Jews to the king of Persia. Look at verse 13. It says, listen, king, let it be known to you that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay your taxes Verse 15, you better search the book of the records. Learn that this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and providences, and that sedition was stirred up in it from old. Verse 16, we make it known to the king. If this city is rebuilt and its walls finished, you will lose your possession in the province beyond the river. They're writing the king and saying, if you don't quench this, they're, they're rebuilding. This people, they're rebellious. They're going to rebel against you. Y'all, these are inflammatory accusations. That is going to happen in our world and in our culture when we live in a hostile environment. There's going to be inflammatory accusations. They don't pay taxes. They're rebellious. They're not loving. They're not caring. And unfortunately, in Ezra chapter 4, these accusations worked. In verse 24, the, the, the king of Persia says that the work on the house of God has to be stopped. And it says it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Church, for approximately 10 years, the building project of the temple was stopped. The opposition had done just enough to relax the hands of the people of God. 
And while, while the work of the temple being rebuilt is, has ceased or been paused, instead of assembling as one man to build that temple, all of these families begin to go back to their own villages. They leave Jerusalem, they go back to their own villages and their own city, and they begin to rebuild their own houses instead of the work that God had called them to do. They were discouraged. They had lost sight of the vision of God and began to rebuild their own purposes. But church, how true is this of you and I? Like how many of us at times in your faith have been on fire for God, right? Like stirred up for his purposes, hungry for his word, but some difficulty, some form of opposition has emerged and all of a sudden you've relaxed your hands. That fire is just a flicker. That hunger is now satisfied with other things. Your purpose that used to be so full of the glory of God is now full of your 401k, that new boat, or whatever it is that God has put on your heart. I'm using quotations if you're looking down. To, to do. It's so easy, y'all. It's so easy to lose sight of the purposes of God. I just want to encourage you, as we move into Ezra chapter 5 right now, wage the good warfare. The opposition wants you to relax your hands, but church, rage the good warfare. So here's point number two. How do we do that? We wage the good warfare with worship. As we move to Ezra chapter 5, we wage the good warfare with the word of God. It's with the word of God. Look at Ezra chapter 5 verse 1. So remember, the temple building has been gone for 10 years. It's paused. It's ceased for 10 years. But in Ezra chapter 5 verse 1, we read, Now the prophets... Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Idu, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheotel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. Church, it was the word of God through these prophets that reinvigorated the work of God. It was the word of God. In Haggai chapter 1 Verse 7, this is what Haggai encouraged them with. It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it, that I may be glorified, says the Lord. It says, You looked for much, and behold, it has come to little. When you brought it home, it just blew away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts? Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. The people of Israel had lost sight on the work of God and were giving all of their attention and their energy to building their own little personal kingdoms. And then Haggai comes and says, you better stop. And then Haggai verse 12, uh, chapter 1 verse 12 says this, Then Zerubbabel and Jeshua, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent them, and the people feared the Lord. And the spirit of Joshua and Zerubbabel and the spirit of all the remnant of the people came, they were stirred up, and they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. Church, the word of God convicted them. It, it convicted them of focusing on their own little kingdoms. And then the word of God reinvigorated them to come back and to begin to build the house of God. Church, the word of God is, is a weapon for your warfare. When Jesus was driven 40 days out into the wilderness and was tempted with all kinds of temptations, what was the weapon he used to, to push back that opposition? It was the word of God. When the church in Ephesus was facing a deep season of opposition and Paul encouraged them and says, take up the sword of the Spirit, which is what? The word of God. In the church in Corinth, when they were going through so much attack and so much opposition, Paul tells them, guys, you have weapons. And the weapons of your warfare are not of the flesh, 
But they have divine power to destroy strongholds. Do you know what strongholds are? In the Greek, strongholds are habitual patterns of thinking. There are ruts in your thinking. And that is what Satan wants to do. Church, the battlefield for you as a believer in Christ is in your mind. He whispers lies. He whispers doubts. He wants to deceive. And he wants to impact your mind. And when you start thinking and agreeing with his thoughts and not the thoughts of God, it creates strongholds. It creates habitual patterns of thinking in your head. And Paul says, guess what, though? You have a weapon of warfare that can pull down that stronghold. So how do we get this stronghold out of our mind? You have it renewed. You have it transformed. And how do we do that? With the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. You have got to get this book into your head. You've got to sing it. You've got to pray it. You've got to memorize it. We have got to be in this book. Church, this is a weapon. It's a weapon. Put it in your mind, and it will pull down these strongholds. I pray that the Word of God would reinvigorate you this morning as it did the people of Israel in Ezra chapter 5. All right, so they started rebuilding. I'm going to conclude for us. They start rebuilding because the prophets of God were with them and supporting them. But the governor of the area began to raise the alarm again, sends off another letter to the king of Persia and says, you better stop them. But this time, the favor of God was with them. And so look in Ezra chapter 6, verse 7. The king of Persia responds to this, this governor of the land and says, let the work on this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. Church, their obedience, leaving Babylon, going back to Jerusalem, attracted opposition. It will every time. But they responded to that opposition with worship in the word of God, and the work went on. The purposes of God continued to be fulfilled. So look at verse 15. And this house was finished. On the third day of the month of Adar, in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king, the temple was built. The work that God had stirred was accomplished in this first wave, but, but let me leave you with one more weapon. Three weeks after the temple is completed, what we see in verse 19 is they celebrated, they dedicated that temple with the keeping of the Passover. Right, The Passover is a, is a celebration, a remembrance of God's divine protection and favor over his people. Right, the Passover was instituted when the people of Israel left Egypt under the guise of Pharaoh. Right? He did, they, they got out of Dodge. How? Because the night before they left, they, they took the blood of a lamb and they, they put that blood over the doorposts of their homes so that when the angel of death would come through, it would pass over the people of God and only strike the people of Egypt. Church, one of the greatest weapons of your warfare it is not the blood of a lamb over the doorpost of your home, but is what? The blood of Jesus Christ over the doorpost of your lives. That Passover, that lamb that, that provided this divine protection for the people of God in the Exodus is just a foreshadowing. It's just a type of the blood of Jesus Christ, which is what 1 Corinthians 5 says. Christ is our Passover lamb. And he has been sacrificed in his subsequent resurrection. Church, when he died on the cross and when he rose again, Colossians 2 says that in that resurrection, he disarmed the powers and the principalities of this world. Disarmed them. Triumphed over them. If you want to stand triumphantly as you wage warfare in the face of opposition, you have got to do it by standing in Christ. He has won this victory. You have to stand in Christ. Church, it's only by the blood of Jesus that we can do that. So let me land it. You want to be obedient. 
God's stirring you up for his purposes. Guess what awaits you? Opposition. But you are not a sitting duck. But your weapons are not of this world. You get to war, you get to war against this opposition with worship, with the word of God, and ultimately through the blood of Jesus Christ. So let me pray for us, and we'll sing a song of response. Father, we're so thankful for your word and just the fundamental principles that we find throughout it. God, we recognize that as your church and as your people, uh, more and more we, we are aware that we live in a land of hostility, a place that opposes the work of God, the word of God, the worship of God. Lord, I pray that you would give us discernment on how to engage the world around us, that we would not, um, that we would not be jerks, that we would love that we would respond to the world as Christ responded to the world, but we would also be firm in the convictions um, that you have for us. Help, help us to do that, Lord, uh, with grace, with mercy. Give us the wisdom as to what that looks like. Lord, I pray for each family in this room that um, you would teach us how to wage war with worship, that we would truly be a people that sacrifices our lives for you, that we would be a people that, that praises you, even when we don't see the results, that we would push back darkness with the praises of our God. And Lord, ultimately, I pray that we would be a people that doesn't stand in our own strength, but actually embraces our weaknesses to stand in the strength of Christ. Christ, thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for your atonement. Thank you for restoring our connection and our communion with you. May we stand secure and firmly in that, in that place. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.